My name is Lalu Davies Yemitin, and you're listening to My Brother Podcast. Think, a simple word, not uncommon, commonly used within the English language, but a particular company coined that term and made it a central focus of what their business was all about. My guest today knows all too much uh, about what used to be international business machines, which we mostly know as IBM. Rod Atkins, thank you so much for making yourself available for my brother podcast. I'd love to launch right into it. Would you just start by sharing a bit, a little synopsis about yourself, your background, and who you are? So first of all, uh, I really appreciate this uh, opportunity today. and. Uh, you know, the, the, that word, that one word is, is actually a very uh, powerful word, and it's probably a word that best characterizes me. Um, my start is really a humble start. You know, I have very humble uh, beginnings. Uh, I came from a, a family with um, strong, I would say, strong values, you know, values like hard work, values like, uh, you know, responsibility, uh, values like uh, staying uh, committed. And I always sort of describe myself to people as this this person that is imperfection uh, at its best. And it's sort of an odd way to sort of describe myself, but I always tell people that, you know, Rod Atkins always wanted to be a politician, but I concluded I wasn't seen enough. I always wanted to be an athlete. And I was pretty good at sports, but I really wasn't talented enough. I, of course, I wanted to be an entertainer because I always thought I had special gifts in that area. But at the end of the day, I really wasn't as expressive enough. But I was gifted and special enough to become an engineer. Um, and when I think about what engineers do, uh, you know, it is our role in life to figure out uh, how to change the world and how to provide capabilities uh, that will make our lives better. And it all sort of connects to that one word uh, that IBM has embraced over the years uh, called think. But the last thing I'll tell you about me before uh, I um, started to advance in my career was uh, some of the things that shaped me uh, in terms of who I am today. You know, uh, clearly my family infrastructure, uh, you know, and the impact from both my parents, my mom and dad, but I also had a great influence from my sensei. You know, I started in martial arts at a very, very early age. And I remember he would always talk about three things. And as a matter of fact, three has become one of my uh, lucky lucky numbers. But he would always say, uh, life is about balance, focus, and timing. And it's always about being balanced, staying focused, um, and then timing, being in the right place um, at the right time. So when I sort of connect those sort of learnings with my strong family values, and then the third component, uh, my, uh, my high school art teacher, um, Eric Jenkins, who uh, happened to be a, was an incredible human being and fraternity brother and, and mentor, he also talked about three things. Uh, he always talked about creativity, uh, the imagination, uh, curiosity, which is one of my 
uh, favorite words, a word that's you can argue that's closely linked to um, think. And then uh, I sort of converted that to the art of daydreaming because I always use daydream form of placing myself in places and in situations. Uh, and it would allow me to role play through those um, scenarios. So when I look at the influences in my life, uh, from my family infrastructure, um, you know, um, being involved early in martial arts, and then although being a science, but appreciating uh, the partnership or the impact that arts uh, have you know, on the, the science, uh, that I think that is some sort of shape of who Rod Atkins is today. Very well stated. So talk to me a bit about your Take us back to Miami, where it all began. So uh, I grew up in a section of uh, Miami uh, near a place that I think has, has, has uh, become somewhat known, uh, Liberty City, which is a, a very challenged part of uh, Miami. So I, I grew up in a, uh, a, um, a very sort of tough, tough environment. But again, a lot of that was offset with, I think, what I would describe as great educators, um, a neighborhood that really operated as a, as a community. Was a neighborhood sort of uh, invested their time um, in the uh, in the kids growing up in the community, um, and you know, and then I um, went through a series of uh, schools: my uh, elementary, middle school, high school. <laughs> it turns out, uh, my wife Michelle, who is a uh, life partner, uh, also grew up actually in the same neighborhood. Same school, same teachers, but we met at Georgia Tech. Uh, and I'll comment on that later, but um, one of the practice assignments I was given in life uh, was to look after Michelle uh, at Georgia Tech. And uh, here we are, I don't know, 37 years later, uh, and I'm still looking after, after Michelle. Actually, she's actually more like she's looking after me. Yeah, so I, I so I had a, uh, a, a a very good, let's say, childhood um, uh, growing up in Miami. Although it was a, um, aspects of it was tough, but 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 it, it, but I also learned uh, how to be uh, the person that I am today. You know, through you know the things that we would do as a family, the things that we would do as a community, uh, the things that I would do. Uh, as part of my um, education uh, process. Um, so I have very, very uh, fond memories of um, Miami establishing a foundation for me moving forward. Yeah, it's so wonderful. Like, you know, it's, it's great to hear about having a family structure and talking about some of those early influences and your recognition of your sort of talents and limitations uh at what age did you start martial arts and what were some of your early perhaps adolescent adolescent years like prior to you um starting high school so i started martial arts at the age of 11. and like most things uh 
I, I, uh, I always try to um, be at the top of my game at pretty much everything I get involved in. And it's just really sort of a practice, maybe a bit, maybe it's DNA. Uh, but um, I was in martial arts at age 11. I actually became a, uh, an accomplished myself uh, by age 14. And it was uh, really interesting when I think about some of the reasons uh, I became a martial artist because, uh, you know, at the time, given the environment, uh, you always want to have some additional tools in terms of, uh, uh, I'll call it, self-protection. But it turns out martial arts was actually more than that. It was, it was really more about a mindset. Uh, and it was really more about discipline. And although you were learning techniques uh, that can be applied to self-protection, it, it really turns out that the, the, the what's called it, the insights and the learnings uh, was really about uh, how to be much more disciplined uh, as a human being. And it's back to those, those three principles that uh, my uh, sensei taught uh, around balance, focus, and timing. And I always think about those three things uh, as I applied it to my career and also how I applied it to my, uh, my, life, um, my life in general. So the martial arts was a very central part of my uh, foundation. As a matter of fact, I continue to be very active in the arts uh, for a number of years uh, where I actually participated uh, in various uh, tournaments um, around the world um, and became very, very good at it. And then for a very brief period of time, I tested my uh, capabilities in terms of uh, teaching um, the arts. And the form of the arts that I studied was a Japanese style called Nishigoji Ryu. And the reason I I uh, gravitated more towards that style, and, it, and it's sort of my personality, it's, it's, it's really a sort of a straightforward, um, power-based style. It's not a sweeping or or a highly uh, finesse style, but it's really about a direct line of uh, contact. And that's sort of how I try to uh, approach things um, in general in life, where I try to say, here we are, here is where we need to go, and then try to sort of come up with the right recipe to get there as quickly as possible. So the, the Nishigo Drew style was really, uh, and, and by the way, you're, you're genius when you think about these things and you look backwards, right? So, um, it, but I can see how all these things sort of shape uh, my behavior and my practice, and, uh, and at the end of the day, uh, a, a level of discipline uh, when it applied to just uh, how I play and how I work. You, you, yeah, and I, I'm gathering, and I, I often ask about what people do outside of just being raised as, as children, because I think sports sometimes can teach you teamwork, uh, and so in a sense, martial arts taught you discipline. So you've got this great foundation. Uh, you were a standout student in high school. So talk to me about your high school years and how uh, you decided to settle on Georgia Tech because uh, you could have had your option of places to uh, pursue your collegiate studies at. 
Yeah. So in addition to the uh, the martial arts, I was I was active in sports as well. I was active in high school sports, and I was uh, became pretty accomplished in uh, track and field. I uh, like many kids, I started off in many sports: baseball, um, basketball, and then I actually converged to uh, the track and field. I was also a very good student. Um, as a matter of fact. I would be probably studying most of the time when a lot of my colleagues were out socializing and having a good time. And it wasn't like I didn't participate in that, but but my allocation of time was more towards my academics uh, versus uh, versus my, uh, my, my my social life. And, and it turns out I actually enjoyed studying. Uh, I actually enjoyed going to school. As a matter of fact, I received an award because I had perfect attendance uh, from the first grade through my uh, my senior year. I did not miss a day of school, um, which 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 is, is I think <laughs> actually remarkable. Uh, but it, it, but it but it's just a statement of uh, the fact that I actually enjoy. Uh, you know, uh, education. And one of the things that uh, I have evolved to talk a lot about is lifelong learning uh, because, you know, one of the pieces of advice that I give people is that learning is sort of a lifelong uh, opportunity. Uh, whether you are age 8 or you're, you're 80, uh, there's always an opportunity to learn something new and to learn something relevant. Uh, so, and one of the foundational, uh, you know, uh, principles behind uh, who I am was the fact that I really, enjoy, I really enjoy um, learning. Uh, I really enjoy uh, learning things, uh, and it's back to again one of my favorite words: curiosity. You know, I am always intrigued uh, by just how things work. Uh, I'm, I'm always just sort of looking for sort of that additional detail in, in many of the things I engage in. So I was, I'm, I'm just sort of a uh, sort of a, a, a lifelong student here. So you uh, you graduate high school at the top of your class. Um, why Georgia Tech, and how did you so, make that transition? Yeah, sort of. Wrap up my high school. I uh, ended up in leadership positions with the council uh, president. I ended up valedictorian of my Victorian my class, graduating number one. And at the time, I was very uh, intrigued by uh, the notion of computers uh, changing the way the world works. Uh, so. If during the high school years, I would tinker with some of the capabilities we had in our high school. And this was before this modern age of how we do uh, computations and computing and analytics. And back then, we had a system, which was a bad card um, system, where you would write your programs, and it was on a series of, um, of um, cards. Since the high technology back then, yeah. more of a batch process in terms of how uh, 
of the algorithms and computations that work. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I sort of uh, picked up a deep interest in that. So by the time I got in my senior year, I concluded that I wanted to be a computer scientist. And at the time, uh, I concluded that Georgia Tech was one of the, uh, the better schools in the nation. Um, but I did not have a direct line to Georgia Tech. I, I ended up as a student for three years at Rollins College, two years at Georgia Tech. And the reason I chose that route is because, again, this is back to my appreciation of the arts. Uh, three years at a liberal arts school, although my emphasis was in science, it was an emphasis in physics, but I just felt that that was an incredible opportunity in terms of combining the arts with science. Three years at Rollins, two years at Georgia Tech, but it also turned out to be a, a great deal because you get two degrees as part of this arrangement. It's called the dual degree uh, program. So I spent three years at uh, Rollins uh, and then uh, studied uh, electrical engineering and computer science um, at Georgia Tech. And it was actually the point uh, I met my uh, lifelong partner because she was uh, three years removed, although we could be the same neighborhood, same students, same teachers, and I, uh, I met Michelle on the campus of uh, Georgia Tech. So what led to that chance interaction uh, between you and her? Well, I, you know, I, I think it was an arrangement, <laughs> but, a, but a great arrangement. I, Michelle was actually a very good student um, as well, National Merit um, Scholar, uh, graduated second in her class, uh, and was very um, active um, in academic-related programs as well as community programs. Um, so as a freshman at Georgia Tech, and she decided um, to take sort of a different path. Um, she ended up majoring in accounting and um, in industrial uh, management. Uh, and I met her on campus uh, sort, of two, sort of two sort of reasons. Uh, one, uh, I was asked to look after her, so I was taking my assignment seriously. Uh, but I also ended up as a tutor, and I was tutoring uh, her roommates. And it turns out that that opportunity to tutor her roommates uh, in, in math and science uh, allowed me more access. <laughs> and it has been such a, um, a, a wonderful opportunity for uh, for both of us, and uh, you know we we're doing I think some amazing things as uh, as our partners. Yes, indeed. So um, you you complete your studies, you meet who you don't know is going to be your lifelong partner. I'm sure there were a lot of other incredible things that happened. Well, like. Georgia Tech, but how did you end up wrapping up and what led you to, uh, to your first job? So, um, again, uh, I always had this uh, desire. Uh, I had actually two desires coming out of Pasadena. Uh, you know, uh, go to uh, Georgia Tech and work by IBM because IBM at the time was a very big name. Uh, in technology, and I also knew IBM was responsible for building computers. Uh, now, but at the time, I didn't realize uh, the 
impact that IBM is actually having on the world because, you know, as I started to study IBM, you know, IBM was instrumental in helping get a, a human on the moon, you know, with the Apollo program, you know, IBM was an instrumental in terms of the back office system that manage our banking infrastructure, you know, the, uh, the airline reservation system. So when you start to think about the impact that it was having, it's more than just think about IBM as a computer company. It was actually an uh, innovation company that was building solutions uh, that was transforming industries uh, and business. So the more and more I read about IBM, uh, I felt that that was the company uh, for me. Uh, and I uh, ended up, as part of the job recruiting process, uh, getting an opportunity uh, to speak with him. And um, I was able to, I guess, showcase um, some potential uh, to the point where they, uh, they hired me as uh, an engineer. Um, working on my first job, I was working on peripheral um, devices that attached to these large systems. And I did that for a year, and I uh, convinced uh, IBM that it would be in the company's best interest, but it was actually in my best interest uh, to send me back for my uh, graduate degree. And after a year of being a very good employee, uh, IBM actually agreed to invest in me. And uh, I went back to Georgia Tech, and it happens to align with Michelle's senior year at Georgia Tech. Uh, and I acquired my um, my master's degree um, in um, electrical engineering with a concentration in computer computer engineering. So that's sort of how um, my early years of uh, uh, influence um, coming out of tech uh, um, being hired by IBM. So it sounds like you were mastering more than just engineer during that year. Uh. <laughs> yeah, and, and again. You know, looking back on this, it it sounds sort of well organized and structured, but I'm pretty sure that there was probably some degree of uh, unstructured chaos then. Uh, but good news was, and this is back to balance, focus, and timing. You know, I was focused. I, mean, I was I was very focused on becoming an engineer. And I would say a balanced engineer, that's, that's the reason why I wanted the liberal arts influence as part of my engineering uh, education. And I was very focused on becoming that engineer and focused on working for a company uh, like, like IBM. Uh, because we're back to this notion that uh, companies like IBM could change the world. Uh, and, that's, and that's one of the reasons why I was very, very interested in uh, so you obtain your master's degree, you go back to working full time at IBM. Uh, what comes next? And and presumably at this time, I mean, you know, you have to be on the forefront of sort of having uh, folks really thinking about not just the future of the company, but I uh, presumably IBM at that time probably still didn't have you know this broad diversity that might have happened in later years. So. How did you find a uh, mentor during on, and how did you sort of start shepherding your career uh, during those early years? So it turns out uh, IBM uh, 
has always been a, a company that was uh, focused on diversity and inclusion. Um, and the good news uh, for me uh, was I had some very good mentors uh, over the years. Uh, so when I finished my graduate work uh, and entered back to ID, I actually came into the company where I think was the most profound uh, period uh, in the uh, information technology movement. And that's when uh, computing uh, was always viewed as sort of this centrally managed resource, you know, in some closed area with people that wear white jackets, that computing became personal. Um, so, and this was sort of the dawn of what we call the client server era, uh, where computing ends up in your home uh, as a connected device into a larger backend information technology infrastructure. And that was sort of a fundamental shift that was occurring uh, when I went back to IBM. So I had the great fortune to be part of what I would call the personal computer uh, revolution, if you will. Um, and uh, I had some really, really great uh, assignments, tough assignments, high-risk assignments that allowed me to scale uh, as that market opportunity mature. But I also had help because I had different types of mentors um, along the way. And, I, and, and when I talk about mentoring, I usually talk about mentoring. Um, it was also, I call it the notion of fit for purpose because I had different types of mentors depending on what my skill or development gap uh, was. And I would use my mentoring relationships to actually help me develop uh, in uh, certain areas. Uh, so early in my career, um, some of my mentors were more technical because I was on a technical path. And then later in my career, some of my mentors were much more, uh, I, would, I would say, either had a financial orientation, uh, had a general management uh, orientation, or they had experiences in terms of uh, working with uh, outside uh, markets, uh, industries, um, you know, and, uh, and companies. So I would uh, leverage different types of skill sets as part of my mentoring process. And many of my mentors, uh, they were people that looked like me, uh, leveraging diverse talent uh, in the company. And some of my mentors were folks that they didn't look like me. They were uh, they wasn't uh, was underrepresented minorities, uh, but they had a skill set and a set of experiences uh, that was to my, uh, that would benefit me in terms of uh, my overall growth and, uh, and development. Uh, one of the great things about IBM, it was, a, it was actually a company uh, that really believed in diversity um, and inclusion. And, you know, one of the things I'm uh, proud of is that I'm actually sort of uh, a key, I'll say, component of that diversity story because I actually became uh, the first black or first African-American uh, senior vice president in the company's uh, history. 
Mm. Uh, and that was through a series of uh, some some really really tough um, P and L jobs, uh, where I had jobs to get us into new markets. I had jobs where I had to uh, help. I had to fix a broken business, and I had jobs where you take a mature uh, market opportunity and you scale. Uh, so I had those various um, opportunities. I also had a job where I, at one point, I think I could argue I had the largest development organization uh, in the world uh, because it was a development organization that spent half of the company's uh, investments in uh, research and development, and it had uh, you know hundred hundred thousand plus uh, computer scientists and engineers. Uh, so I had some great opportunities uh, that I that I performed the right outcomes and actually earned the seat at the table as being the uh, the first uh, African American senior vice president in that And that that distinction occurred in uh, 2007. Right. So. Before you get to the level of having those PL jobs, you know, one would assume you're you're a highly technical um, expert in a highly technical company. You know, it's almost like big companies like IBM hire a bunch of talented engineers. But early in your development process, you talked about taking on some tough uh, challenges. What distinguished you? What what about I know you've talked about, you know, those early lessons of balance, focus on timing, but what were the tools or the core components that allowed you to not just thrive, but you were distinguished in what you did sufficiently to set you on the track of what came down the line? So I, you know, I always had this notion uh, that you are only as good as your, uh, your last job. So, and the reason I always had the notion is because, you know, performance is really about what have you done lately. And although your history of success is great, but people remember what you have done recently. So I always focus on establishing a, a track record of success, but at the same time, I was very focused on my current period of performance. So that was that was that was one thing that I would uh, characterize uh, as part of my recipe. The other part of my recipe was uh, I did not shy away from the tough jobs, and, and, and I grew up so I'm taking some of the tough jobs early in my career, although it was more risk, but at the same time it was potentially more reward. And again, when I connect that with being just very focused on performance uh, and, and producing good results, uh, that also added to the equation. The third thing I would say uh, is, uh, I, and even to this day, uh, I will always tell people, you should always know, or at least have a view, uh, what your next two jobs or your next two opportunities will be. And, and, and the reason I tell people to sort of have that notion in their head is because 
if I sit here and say, you know, I want to be the chairman of the board of Company X, well, the moment I sort of make that declaration to myself, it allows me to say, okay, now, what are the derivatives, what are the inhibitors in terms of me getting to be the chairman of Company X? And I might find out that there are some things I need to work on in terms of skills, uh, certain types of experiences, uh, certain aspects of education and training. So it identifies the gaps that I can go address. And when I address those gaps, it allows me to be more competitive when the consideration process uh, starts. Uh, so I always have this notion to say, hey, always sort of have that view, but use that view to enhance yourself uh, to, you know, focus on where, you, you know, the elements that may not be as complete as they need to be and, and go fix go fix those things. So those were the things that I focused on. And then, and then last but not least, uh, I would always surround my people, I would always surround myself with, with knowledgeable people. Uh, and, you know, I always talk about uh, you know leadership and how you, and how leaders should behave and how leaders uh, should think and, and one of the hallmarks of good leadership is surrounding yourself uh, with knowledgeable people and that was as part of people that work with me people that worked in my organization the types of mentors that fit the purpose point I was making that I would pick uh, that, that, that I pointed out earlier in the type of mentors that I would think that sort of helped me. Uh, so that was part of my uh, my overall recipe. Yeah. You know, I wanted to go back to something you said uh, to see if you can perhaps illustrate for us what was perhaps an example of a tough assignment that you had to take on. And you talk about this element of risk. And I don't think it's something people often think about associated with a job. They think entrepreneurs take risks. But you said you had to take on certain positions that were not just tough, but there was risk. So can you sort of illustrate what kind of position and what risk meant in the context? Yeah, and I would say almost most of my jobs at IBM had some element of Downside for Rod, uh, but they also had. Uh, I think the upside outweighed the downside. So, one job um, it was sort of presented to me as um, I was being asked, but I was sort of. I think I was really being told. <laughs> um, but it was our uh, Unix business. Uh, that was performing poorly in the marketplace. Uh, it was probably somewhere between fourth and fifth in market share. Uh, and we had at the time the chairman and CEO that basically said, you know, um, we have them going forward. Uh, our business model is not to uh, continue to invest in aspects of our business that's not performing. Um, and, you know, we will, you know, he was on record by saying that, you know, we will take action for those various uh, businesses. So I was actually uh, asked or told uh, 
to go take over uh, this business. And it was really a turnaround opportunity. Uh, and uh, I remember the conversation going something like, you know, Rod, you know, we want you to consider taking this. Uh, you have over the weekend to think about it. Uh, and you just need to tell us on Monday, um, you know, what's required to, uh, um, to take this business. And, and so fortunately, I was astute enough to know that I really wasn't being asked. <laughs> so I uh, basically said, I don't need until Monday. You know, I will uh, gladly step in, uh, you know, leading, uh, you know, the turnaround of this business. Uh, but I, but a couple things that we will need to negotiate, and that is uh, location and compensation. Uh, and it turns out this business was started in a part of IBM in Austin, Texas, uh, and it was a division headquarters job. And typically, that role that I was taking over. Uh, Reports uh, in um, our Somers Armont headquarters location, and the proposition that I put on the table was that, uh, given the eighteen months to two years, I turn this business around to either to be in the location uh, at the core of where the work is done, and then that was Austin, Texas. So I relocated my family, we moved to um, Austin, Texas. And I'm happy to say after uh, two years, uh, the business moved from fourth or fifth in market share to number two. And within another year, year and a half, it became number one in market share. And even to this day, I believe it's still, I haven't checked lately, but I believe it's probably still the market uh, leading um, units, high performance between platform. Um, in the market. That's an example of taking something that was on the edge of the company divesting in potentially, putting the right sort of focus on the business, turning it around and becoming a, a uh, positive contributor to IBM overall uh, PNL. And I had examples. You know, earlier in my career, um, I was asked to help uh, make uh, our stents, uh, desktop PCs mobile. Uh, so I uh, was sent to, for a period of time, to Japan to work with our Yamato laboratory uh, to come up with different types of solutions to convert desktop computing uh, to mobile computing. So that was a sort of a high risk proposition. And, and, and quite frankly, the first two or three shots that we didn't quite get it right. You know, the, the first mobile PC was very heavy. It looked like a sewing machine, and it weighed 35 pounds. And it had some technologies that had to mature, you know, like the battery would last for 20 minutes. You know, it had a screen, was probably the size of the screen on your, uh, your iPhone or your, you know, your, your mobile phone. Um, and it, you know, it, it had uh, removable media. Uh, and the amount of information you can store on that media uh, was not much. And although back then we thought it was uh, quite a bit compared to today's standards, uh, it was uh, it was it was uh, it was not much. Uh, so I had opportunities uh, like that. Uh, the other highest opportunity was um, I've been getting into 
at the time we called it pervasive computing, and this was in 2000. Today it's called Internet of Things. And that's an example of we had a vision of computing moving into things that don't normally look like a computer. You know, so the, the, this was sort of the early stages of wearables, like all these different wearable devices. Yeah. Uh, we have, uh, and, and so it was the early days of you know, all these different things being connected and becoming intelligent devices. And we had a notion that said, boy, the more intelligence you embed is going to create new types of uh, transactions transactions and new opportunities and now we're seeing the world that we're living in today uh, a world that is about information and analytics moving more and more towards uh, things like artificial intelligence and machine learning and i had an opportunity to be one of the uh, pioneers that worked on what we call pervasive computing which became smarter planet which is now today uh, internet of um, things uh, so those are examples of Different types, uh, and that last job was a ill-defined job that did not have a lot of definition around it, and we had to put discipline, structure, execution, and focus. Uh, and that was a high-risk, uh, all of those were high-risk type opportunities. Yeah, yeah. But rewarding. Certainly. If you, if you could indulge me, would you perhaps walk us through in sort of a chronological fashion what different positions, you know, maybe five or six positions prior to reaching that first PNL position? What led to those shifts and transitions uh, in position? And what the significance of landing your first PNL job uh, represented? So the the best equation to land a PL job is, you know, I, I talk about, and the industry is beginning to talk about this a lot. It's called, you want to be T shaped. Yeah. You want to look like a T, right? You and if, like I could, if I can just interject, PL means profit and loss job. Yes, by the it way. means a profit and loss statement. And it's yeah. Financial performance of the, uh, the company. Right. Sure. So, and what I mean by T shaped, you know, coming out of school, the the vertical part of the T is typically what we what we acquire. That is, uh, pick up skills and knowledge in a specific domain. And uh, and a lot of times, a lot of your early jobs, you have uh, it. You, you 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 actually end up, you know, perfecting your capabilities in your your given skill area or your domain. Uh, and, and by the way, that's necessary. So my first three to four years at IBM was really about becoming a better engineer, uh, taking on more engineering assignments, uh, successfully executing those assignments, getting recognized for those assignments. And by being recognized, it was either more money or more responsibility with a better title. So it was really about that vertical part of the team. As you start to approach management or leadership jobs or managing P&Ls, it's really about the horizontal part of the team. And that's really when you have to start perfecting your capabilities in other areas, like your written and verbal communication skills, your critical thinking 
your analytical skills. Um, you know, skills in turn, I call it business acumen. And then uh, we talked about P&Ls, which is the profit and loss statements, which is a financial expression of how the company is performing. You also want to pick up what I would call some of those business acumen skills. So understand how to manage the finances associated with uh, running a project or running a business segment, because you, you have to worry about at some point how you manage costs, uh, how you manage within a budget in terms of the expenses. And then if you are in a job that is generating uh, top line performance uh, for the company, you also have to understand how you generate revenues uh, for the uh, for the for the business uh, for the business opportunity. So over time, uh, I had more jobs, uh, you know, that started to evolve from just pure technical deli technical delivery to more having aspects of management, uh, where uh, I moved from doing engineering to managing engineers. Mm -hmm. um, and that was still sort of in the technical uh, arena, but it started to introduce responsibilities like managing people, like managing budgets. Uh, and then I evolved to a point where I started managing departments. Uh, and this would be managing managers. And again, that was still within the engineering ranks where I was really focused on delivering a portfolio of uh, products um, and solutions. And then really when the big, I would say, uh, inflection point in my career occurred is when I was being viewed as a general manager where not only I had the opportunity to manage engineering projects, there were other dimensions of leadership added to my uh, set of responsibilities, uh, like having worldwide operations. So although we were building the products, operation teams to make sure that the products were in the right places at the right time. Um, uh, adding in sales um, functions, the, the, the resources that's in the geographic regions around the world that, would, that, that, is, that has a relationship with the customers and the various opportunities to sell those products. And then marketing functions. Uh, the teams that would sort of build the right story and build the right campaigns to help us to generate um, awareness uh, and to deliver the set of tools to help our sales colleagues sell the product. Um, so I evolved from engineering to managing engineers to managing managers uh, of, of multiple pro pro projects and then to getting more management responsibility beyond engineering, which started to bring in the aspects of being a general manager, where it was about the product and delivery, it was about the marketing uh, and sales, and it was also about the technical uh, support uh, of the product. So I ended up starting getting what is called, I call it the life cycle of a product and an offering. Uh, as the uh, general manager. And then uh, over time, you know, those roles start to uh, expand more and more in terms of having more and more of the company's uh, portfolio. So the one job that I've talked about 
uh, the Unix business. Uh, that was a job that had uh, multiple labs in multiple locations, uh, sales resources in over the 190 plus countries um, IBM uh, did business in, um, you know, a, a group of professionals that would work on the marketing and merchandising um, uh, programs and a group of executives that will work on, because we were a global business, uh, how do we conduct uh, and move product and offerings um, on, a, on a global basis. And then ultimately, um, the real big P&L that I had in IBM was IBM's hardware business, um, which a good way to think about IBM, uh, IBM is hardware, software, services, and research. We have one of the largest commercial research organizations in the world, um, a large services organization. Um, our middleware um, software suite and then hardware, which we call the hardware, but it was really systems because it was more than hardware because it had the operating system component and some of the, the management solution um, to so that the system can actually uh, or the hardware can actually um, run. And I had the distinct uh, honor of running all of the product development for that for a number of years, but also being the general manager uh, for that which was nearly a uh, $30 billion business for IBM uh, with um, well over 100,000 um, resources um, across the, um, the business uh, labs and 43 labs. I believe they were in like 27 countries or locations and sales resources and 190 countries around the world. You know, it's funny you could say 30 billion and now it sounds so commonplace, but at that time it was a massive number. It still is, but it still is. It still is. It is. It is. It is. And uh, I would just say because now you have companies that are trillion dollar in valuation companies, but back then it was just not a thing uh, that was on the horizon uh, back when you were managing uh, such a uh, sizable budget. Yes. And, you know, and IBM has always been one of the um, leading uh, companies in the marketplace. And to your point, the landscape has uh, it, it constantly changes and it constantly shifts. And because of the emergence of uh, social media, you know, uh, cloud and analytics uh, and, and new types of solutions uh, that has allowed the creation of new types of um, technology, technology companies. Um, so it is, uh, it is more players uh, in the overall information technology space uh, than it was 10 years ago, and certainly uh, more than 20 years ago or even 30 years ago. Definitely. Now you mentioned that getting that first general manager job was sort of an inflection point um, for your career. What was it like when you got that call and did it give you a sense of, man, I could be well on my way? No, it, well, it was a great call. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I uh, again, it's back to my model of, OK, once I was in the chair, I started thinking about the next two jobs because I was I was always that guy. Yeah. And. But at the same time, I was grounded in reality because I knew that this all depended on what have you done lately? You know, so all of these things are sort of uh, connected with me. And I knew in that first 
general manager's role, I had to, I, I really had to hit the ball hard and, 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 and not hitting a single or a double. It had to be something like a triple or a home run or a grand slam. Uh, because I always tell people, you always want to be known for something by someone. And I want, this was my opportunity to establish my brand uh, that Rod Atkins has consistently delivered. And we, he is now in this sort of big, very visible role. And, you know, I had to make sure that that narrative was not going to change. Uh, so I was very focused on, very focused on execution, very focused on performance, very focused on outcome. The, the other thing uh, along the way, and, I, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't say this, but uh, you, you don't become successful alone. You, you know, so this notion of, you know, a lot of people use, like to use the word, well, I did it. No, we did it, you know, because I, I did have help. Um, along the way. So when you start to think about the mentors that I had or, or even the team that I built around me uh, that supported me in the journey that we were on, uh, I had a great um, support structure and uh, it was a number of uh, people that was, that was instrumental in that journey. And I, and I always would tell people about what I thought good leadership was, you know, I always say it's sort of three principles around good leadership. It's like know when to listen. And, and that is this notion of surrounding yourself with the right people. Um, know when to learn. And, and this is back to my firm belief that you always have to say, stay intellectually curious. You always have to be focused on learning new and relevant things. You, you just can't come um, ever become complacent. And then I would call it, uh, the last one is know how to leverage. And, and I mean leverage in a positive way because you always have to know how to get things done with or through people. And, uh, you know, at IBM, um, you know, I, I do get a lot of credit of, of being a pretty good leader because I would always talk about, you know, bad leaders always think uh, people work for them. And I always would say good leaders think uh, people work with them, but I always try to make, I always viewed myself as a good leader because I always, uh, a great leader, because I always said great leaders think that they work for the people. Um, and so my success is a, is a shared story, although I get the benefit of saying, yep, I was the first African-American to be appointed senior vice president in IBM, but it's, it's a lot of people uh, that uh, continues and, and should celebrate um, in that um, in that success because I didn't I didn't I didn't get there alone. I was I surrounded myself uh, with great people, and then um, because of my style and approach, um, you know, people would sort of volunteer to help me along the way. Yeah, yeah, and so you um, speaking of people who helped you along the way. There was a point where you had to consider, I think you mentioned you worked in Japan or, or some overseas assignments. Yeah. How did you reach that decision and what influences uh, sort of factored in you taking on that responsibility? Well, it turns out um, IBM has these, and I probably should have said this earlier, they have these developmental roles that they call um, uh, executive assistants, where they will take 
a high potential individual uh, out of their sort of uh, line row and assign them to a very senior executive, anywhere between, I call it nine months to uh, 18 months. And that person would shadow that senior executive. Uh, and as part of that process, yeah, you get some specific assignments, but as part of that process, you get to sort of watch a leader in action. And uh, one of the uh, assignments I was on, uh, while I was on that assignment, the senior executive uh, res uh, resigned from IBM. Um, as a matter of fact, he went to go be a very, very senior executive for a company at the time. It was called Lotus One Two Three, uh, and it actually became a company that later IBM acquired, and it became part of our our software uh, portfolio. But when that executive left. And the new executive came in. The new executive today is a very dear friend and has been a, a coach, a mentor, you know, all of the above for me and IBM. His name was Nick D'Onofrio. And one of the first things he did when he came in was uh, he sent me on a short assignment uh, to Japan. Uh, and this was back when we were looking at making computing, computing mobile. And I had the opportunity to spend some time in our Yamato laboratory uh, in, in, with the, with the, uh, the Japanese um, team. And that was one of these assignments where, uh, yeah, I didn't get a sort of, I didn't get to participate in whether or not uh, I was gonna do that. Uh, Nick just thought it was the right thing for me to do. And, and, and it turns out he was, he was right. And as a matter of fact, most of the assignments I've had in my career over the years, uh, he played some role, um, you know, whether it was uh, recommending me for certain things or coaching me for certain things or or if I or in some cases I took the initiative to say, hey, Nick, you know, uh, please provide um, advice, advice and counsel. Uh, so Nick has played a role a role throughout uh, throughout my career and Nick was was he wasn't really the only mentor but he was a good example of what I describe as uh, fit for purpose you know he was that mentor uh, that helped me uh, in terms of thinking through things and then once I was in the job he would help me um, in terms of you know if I needed to, to deal with a gap or or needed extra help in a specific area uh, he, he was always that, that, that mentor that I can call, um, Nick D'Onofrio. And then I had other mentors along the way. And even to this day, you know, I'm retired from IBM. Uh, I'm successful on a number of boards. I'm doing a lot of consulting work. Uh, but I also say I still have mentors. I still talk to Nick. Uh, and then I have, um, I've acquired a new mentor, John Jacobs, who uh, you know is a, uh, was a very successful a business executive and also the former uh, head of, um, of um, the Urban League. And he and I have formed a great relationship because I am still at a point in life uh, where I can always learn something new and interesting uh, from someone else. And, 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 uh, and John sort of represents that, uh, that mentoring opportunity for, for me these days. Yeah, certainly. So you, you, 
you know, and I want to get to where you transition to board service. But before that, you're a general manager. You get this assignment to move to Austin, which is pretty significant. Um, what was the series of events or, or roles that led to you now becoming named uh, as a vice president within the company? And then how did that lead to you ultimately ascending or, or assuming a role as a senior vice president? So, so IBM has a uh, interesting sort of flow of titles uh, because I actually became a vice president before I became a general manager. And then from general manager, I had a series of general manager jobs and then I was appointed senior vice president. So my vice president roles, they were mostly vice presidents of an engineering function uh, so I was a vice president of development, you know, as, as an example. I was the vice president um, uh, for uh, operations type jobs. And then I was promoted to general manager where a general manager in IBM has a series of vice presidents reporting to them. So that, that, that you know, the general manager could have a vice president of sales, a vice president of marketing, a vice president of operations, a vice president of finance, a vice president of uh, development. So I had a series of general management jobs. And, and, and by the way, as part of general management job, you get a P&L because you are not only managing costs and expense, you are building products and solutions that, that get marketed and sold in the various uh, markets and geographies we participate in. Uh, so you, you, you're now, in the arena of um, helping the uh, company meet its financial, in a, in a very significant way, meet its financial um, objectives in terms of both growth, which, uh, you know, and also profit and bottom line performance. And at the end of the day, your, your, your goal is to generate shareholder value. Uh, so I was general manager of uh, desktop PCs, and I was general manager uh, which was a PL role. I was general manager of this Unix business that I talked to you about that was a uh, turnaround. I was general manager of pervasive computing, uh, which was this um, early view of what is IoT uh, today. So I had a, a series of general manager jobs managing PLs. And then um, um, I, I got to a, the point where the company said, Okay, he's he's proven, and I actually became senior vice president of uh, what we and the title was development and manufacturing, where I had the role of managing all of the development functions and uh, some of our manufacturing um, functions. You know, because we had uh, we had these fabs that build semiconductors, which was both engineering but it was also manufacturing because the these these fabs or manufacturing sites had to produce the chips that would go into our systems that we would build and then uh, some of the technologies we would sell to other technology partners so i became the senior vice president of that uh technical um area and then i was two years later i was promoted to senior vice president of systems and technology group which included that technical area, but then again, it brought in all of the marketing, the sales, the finance functions, 
um, et cetera. So I had sort of really three senior vice president jobs at IBM, one over IBM's technical resources, one managing the hardware or my definition systems P&L. And then the last uh, assignment I had was senior vice president of uh, corporate strategy, which was when uh, I decided it was uh, time for me to be thinking about life after IBM. And I had a great opportunity to uh, be the steward uh, for IBM's um, long-term, long-term strategy uh, for, for about a year and a half before I retired. So from 2007 to 2014, uh, that was, um, you know, the various opportunities I had as, uh, you know, senior vice president um, at IBM. As a matter of fact, recently, uh, great news because, you know, you know, I always would tell people that I didn't, I didn't think my uh, story at IBM was complete, that being the first and only senior vice president, because I was appointed uh, in 2007, retired in 2014. And, you know, one would like to think that someone that looks like you uh, will have an opportunity uh, at, you know, you know, high-end jobs like that, um, an opportunity to sit at the table. And most recently, IBM actually uh, named this uh, senior, uh, second senior vice president. Um, you know, so although 2007 to 2020, 13 years later, the good news is uh, it, it, it has been more than one yeah, IBM history. Certainly. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it, it is tremendous the times that we're experiencing in 2020 with so many of those shifts. And it, it was great to hear that news uh, that, you know, you know, you're still a history maker, but uh, history has been made twice now uh, at IBM. And I think the, the sites continue to be set on, you know, sort of smashing that final glass uh, ceiling. If you look across the, the corporate uh, spectrum, I think the within the ranks of Fortune 500 CEOs, I think we're down to about three who are African-American now. And so it's something that guys like myself uh, look at and we're constantly trying to think, OK, what does progress really represent when you forecast out, you know, the latter years of, you know, perhaps our most active uh, working career days. But um, you 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 finally retire in in 2014 you know I, i've got to ask what did it feel like i i presume at some point your picture got placed on the website uh for ibm what, what happened on the website yeah they must have put placed your picture up at some point on the website and that's when it's like you have finally arrived and so what was it like the first time you got wind of oh i'm on the website now well, I'm trying. Well, well, well. Honestly, um, you know, I, um, I, I think my reaction was a uh, sort of a, a, a sort of a, a typical reaction that says, "Boy, um, you know, back to those family values. You know, uh, hard work. You know." Um, commitment, 
responsibility. You know, to me, that's when it sort of all, all sort of came together, you know, because, you know, I talked about a lot of things in my uh, upbringing, which was foundational, uh, but it was one of probably the most powerful reflective moments uh, that you can go through where you can just say, boy, this journey, it, it was a road, it was a, it was a road traveled hard, but boy, at the end of the day, it just felt right. And it felt right because of the preparation um, along the way. So when I think about the family influence, when I think about uh, the sensei, Herbert Thompson, talk about his three things. When I think about the community influence, when I think about the influence from uh, K through 12, you know, being that student with perfect attendance. You know, when I think about all of those things, um, you know, always being focused on, you know, it's, it's never enough when it comes to curiosity. It's never enough when it comes to learning uh, new things. And when that moment came together, you know, and, 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 and by the way, taking the hard jobs, you know, the guy that didn't sleep uh, much, which is <laughs> catching up with me uh, in these, these later years. But, you know, when, when people were sleeping, you know, I was working, you know. Um, so when you start to think about all of those sacrifices uh, uh, coming together, it was probably one of the most powerful uh, reflective moments. And as a matter of fact, you know, I, you know, at times I'm a daydreamer. Uh, I think I said that earlier. Uh, and I always believed in the power of daydreaming because it, it allows you to sort of put yourself in certain positions. You know, and I know as a kid, a lot of us daydream. You know, you always think about, because we're in the NBA finals now, you know, you always think about being that kid in the game that takes the last shot. You know, and, and you know, you make the shot at the buzzer. You know, I, I had those thoughts, but I also had these thoughts that I was the uh, kid that was getting on the elevator with a briefcase in my hand, going to the top floor. Um, I would always envision myself uh, in places like that, and it was just a beautiful thing when that sort of image becomes real. Uh, when that image becomes real. So your, your, your point on being on the website or being on the top floor uh, in Armok where the top officers of the company sit, uh, it was just such a powerful feeling uh, for someone like me uh, to be there. And what, what made it more sort of impactful was if I wasn't, these, these feelings wasn't really about just me. It was really about back to the team. It was really about we, you know. Um, it was an opportunity as people from all walks of life, as they look up in the organization, you know, they see a Rod Atkins. And whether you were African-American or, or, or not, uh, I did have a brand that represented something. Um, and, and, and I think I had some appealing things that, you know, when people think about Rod, you know, Rod always treated people like how he wanted to be treated. Um, you know, that, that was Rod. 
Rob was always approachable. My office was always open. And I had time for him for the lowest level, uh, you know, technician to the chairman or CEO or the or the board of directors of uh, IBM. To me, everyone played a role and everyone had value. So I always had time uh, for everyone, and that's and that was sort of uh, who I stood for. But I also for my constituency. Uh, I, I made sure that as you think about the employment life cycle, um, you know, uh, we as a company, and, and, and this wasn't hard to do in IBM, but as a company, uh, it was all about attracting the best skill. And then once we get the best skill uh, into the company, it was really about how we uh, develop those skills uh, how we advance those skills, how we rec and how we recognize uh, and retain uh, those skills. And you know, I actually would say that was my night job at IBM because I had a mentoring network that it got to the point where I couldn't even tell you how many. There were literally hundreds and hundreds of mentees uh, because I I felt it was my responsibility uh, to make sure that we had a pipeline of talent and a pipeline of talent it. It needed to be diverse, but it also needed to have a lot of people that look like me as well, because the right business proposition is, you know, I, I always believe uh, the best companies are the companies that really leverage the power of diversity, leverage the power of inclusion. Uh, and, you know, and I sort of walked the talk uh, when it came to that. So, you know, my view is when I was sitting there and sort of soaking in those moments. You know, it was just so real from the standpoint of all of these things I stood for and all of the preparation that went um, towards that. It was it was a very powerful moment. And even to this day, you know, as we speak, it's just a powerful feeling that uh, I have had an impact. Uh, and and I think I'm and I will continue to have an impact, um, although a lot of my focus these days has sort of shift, shifted to the world of philanthropy. Uh, but that is just another angle in terms of uh, giving back. It's just another angle in terms of giving back. Certainly. And I will talk about your philanthropy here in a second as we uh, try to conclude the interview. But you transitioned. Um, at the end of sort of the first uh, phase of your career, as you like to call it, uh, but then you transition into sort of uh, playing a role uh, as someone who serves on corporate boards. What was that transition like, and what has that experience been like over the last, you know, several years? So, and, and I'm glad you used the word transition because um, I think it's a perfect word. Uh, because I really, it's, it's hard to say that I retired um, because I am, I am just as active, I'm just as engaged, I'm just, and I'm probably uh, just as busy. Uh, and that transition, the transition for me was, I would probably say I didn't miss really, I didn't really miss a beat because when I uh, graduated from IBM, I ended up on five public boards, serving on five public boards. And then um, I would say it was about 10 other boards 
in terms of nonprofits, university boards, uh, foundations, my fraternity foundation. You know, so I was very uh, actively engaged, uh, and it was a different type of busyness. You know, um, you know, in a different type of intensity. You know, I ended up working on a, on on many things as opposed to, you know, when I was in business, it was much more, uh, much more uh, structured and focused and concentrated. Um, and the thing I tell people, I actually prepared for this second chapter in life, which is also one of my lessons that I tell people that, you know, when, when it's time for you to transition, think about it sooner versus later, because just like how you prepare to become a manager or prepare to become a leader in terms of getting the right skills and the experiences and the training. You also have to prepare for life after your uh, primary uh, profession. And in this case, I decided I wanted to uh, be a uh, director on um, public company boards. Uh, and it and there are some things you need to do to prepare uh, to become um, um, a director. Uh, obviously, uh, it is easier to become a director if you uh, have an established name and a brand and a track record um, in the marketplace. But boards uh, look for certain skills. Uh, actually, boards, they publish what is called a skills matrix. Uh, and you have to figure out how you fit into that skills matrix because the board needs a full complement of capabilities to run a, a, a productive and effective um, board. So, uh, you know, I started picking up more skills around logistics and distribution, although I had the technology uh, 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 background. And I also started, back to this lifelong learning, picking up more uh, understanding about cybersecurity. So, mm -hmm. uh, so all of a sudden, every, you know, uh, I, I've had untold number <laughs> of uh, board opportunities because of my successful IBM career. But at the same time, I have um, developed talent uh, in, uh, in other areas like logistics and distribution, cybersecurity, um, et cetera. So um, preparing, preparation went into um, into my board life. You know, one of the jobs that I don't, talk much about is uh, I actually had IBM supply chain um, as well. This is the organization that does all of the, the procurement for the company. And this is when I had the systems and technology PL. So I always tell people, you know, I had two jobs in IBM, you know, the day job, which was running the systems and technology PL, but the supply chain job that purchased everything from parts, supplies, and services to run the $100 billion IBM um, enterprise. And at the time, I didn't realize what a blessing that was. At the time, it was pain. It was pain. But looking forward, it was actually a blessing um, because UPS is a logistics and distribution company. Rod Atkins ran IBM's supply chain. Well, you know, that is like an instant match. Mm. Ranger. Uh, an industrial um, MRO company, logistics and distribution. Well, Rod Atkins ran IBM's supply chain. Abnet, I'm the chairman of the board now, uh, but that's an IT 
distribution company. Mm. And Rod, of course, they wanted me for the technology and, my, and the strategy, but the fact that I ran the supply chain uh, helped me helped me quite a bit. Uh, so the, the message here is uh, prepare for that transition. Uh, and if you're interested in boards, really understand, you know, how boards, how boards um, operate because, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's really sort of tough getting uh, attention, um, you know, from a, from a board company. Um, but it boils down to how do you fit from a skills perspective, uh, your, your track record and your uh, reputation. And then the third component is figuring out who are the decision makers um, on the board. And it's typically the chairman, the CEO, and the person that's running nomination and uh, governance. As a matter of fact, I remember my very first board, Pitney Bowes. Uh, I was working for IBM. I ended up on that board. And how I ended up on that board? Well, I found out who the nomination and governance committee chairperson was. And I figured out a way for that person to meet me. And I, and I actually told him, told him why Pitney Bowes would benefit from my services uh, on the board. And he found that intriguing and a, and a very um, innovative approach. And I ended up meeting the chairman. I ended up meeting the CEO. And my very first public board uh, was, uh, was uh, Pitney Bowes. And then after five years, um, I uh, ended up um, not standing for re-election, joined UPS board. And then after UPS board, uh, I joined um, uh, Ranger, Abnet, uh, Pennsylvania Power on the uh, power utility board, and then and then also on PayPal. Yeah. Uh, so so that's my history uh, with with boards and post retirement. Well, just know I was making mental notes and daydreaming myself about what lies ahead. So, yes. uh, Thanks for sharing those uh, very important tips about what really does matter, being prepared for what comes next, but. I think also for young people, and I'll share it, it's a desire of mine to serve on corporate boards in the future, but you've really clearly articulated how to approach it and steps that one needs to take to develop the skill sets that uh, boards find uh, valuable. So let's pivot and talk about uh, sort of your life's mission now. You've talked about what you're doing uh, and your focus on philanthropy. Would you talk a bit about some of what, you, uh, what you've what you been up to? So Michelle and I, back to my lifelong uh, partner uh, who has, uh, again, she's part of the journey. She's part of the success. Uh, she had a very successful professional career for about 10 years as a, as a practicing uh, CPA, but we got to a point where she, uh, she decided to focus on uh, raising our two um, two young men uh, who uh, who have become successful citizens, contributing citizens, um, and um, we've sort of together shift gears more towards uh, how we can give back more, um, and, and and some of this is is from the fact that we've been fortunate, you know, we, we, uh, we have, um, 
we have done uh, pretty well here and you know and we're blessed i would say we're blessed and you know i just have this view in life that when you're blessed you should share your blessings uh if and when you can and and that's what we uh we have dedicated um our time going forward um uh, to so we're very active um in a number of things you know we have a number of name scholarships for uh, African-American students. Um, since I'm a scientist, I, most of my scholarships uh, focus on uh, African-Americans in the STEM disciplines. Uh, some of them are merit-based, uh, but some of them are needs-based uh, because, you know, some kids actually develop later than others. They're sort of a diamond in the rough. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And over time, uh, with the right environment, they, they become um, responsible citizens, responsible con contributing uh, citizens. So we actually have scholarships that try to focus on people that have demonstrated great academic capabilities, but people that they, they, they may not be as strong academically. They have needs, but they have demonstrated a willingness to do other things like community-based uh, work, you know, and other types of extracurricular, which says that they are somewhat of a rounded um, human being. So we have a number of um, scholarships at a, at a few universities um, that, we, uh, that we sponsor. My uh, largest contribution in life was, you know, the Smithsonian, uh, you know, National Museum of um, African-American History and Culture, uh, yeah. the new museum on the mall. And uh, I served on the Smithsonian board um, national board for 10 years. So I had the opportunity to watch when we first put the shovel in the ground to when we had the grand opening and to also watch this museum become really one of the number one attractions, um, frankly, in the world. Uh, when you think about, um, you know, the desire of uh, people and not just African Americans, because you know, I think the last statistic, the last number I saw was um, during the peak times. You know, about thirty percent of the people attending the museum were non-African Americans, and we were getting a um, a lot of attendees from uh, global citizens yeah. uh, attending the museum. And the reason why this is a big deal and the reason why Michelle and I wanted to be founding donors uh, is because I think this is one of the most powerful statements uh, to be a part of something that's going to be enduring. Uh, and it is a product that tells a more complete and comprehensive story about America's history. You know, so we like to call it the African-American Museum of History and Culture, which it is, and it is giving us a view of our history through an African-American lens, but it completes uh, the American experience, it completes the American um, story. Uh, so we have been very proud of um, being part of um, what I think is gonna be a continuous, um, a continuous journey, because I think it's just an absolute spectacular uh, creation. Uh, and it has resonated extremely well 
um, across most constituencies. Um, the, the other thing uh, we're proud of, uh, we're both, of course, we met at Georgia Tech. Um, so we have scholarships at Georgia Tech. We are very active at Georgia Tech. Our youngest son graduated from Georgia Tech. Uh, so we're sort of a Georgia Tech family. Um, but in the center of campus, in the center of campus, there is a, uh, an exhibit called Continuing the Conversation. Uh, it is uh, Rosa Parks uh, at age, uh, life-size figure of Rosa Parks at age 42 and Rosa Parks at age 92. Uh, they are then these life-size figures that are sitting across from each other. Uh, and there's a bench in the middle that invites you into a conversation that says, you know, I wonder what young Rosa would talk to the more mature Rosa about or vice versa. And the significance of the piece uh, is uh, at age 42 is when Rosa uh, refused to give up her seat. Um, you know, the, the story about that. And then she passed away at age 92. So that represents 50 years. But that 50 years of history, we were also celebrating at Georgia Tech. Uh, and it's in a special place at Georgia Tech. It's called Harrison Square. Harrison was, I don't know, the sixth president of Georgia Tech. But he was the guy that desegregated the school before it was law. Um, so he was the one that uh, allowed the first black students uh, on the, uh, campus. Uh, it was also to celebrate 50 years uh, of when the um, Black Student Union, the first Black organization, uh, was established um, at Georgia Tech. And it also happens to align with the, uh, the, the uh, assassination, the anniversary of the uh, assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. So when we donated this piece to uh, uh, Tech, you know, we had the benefit of having various generations of the Harrison family, the King family, and the Park family that participated in that uh, unveiling and that, that uh, donation to uh, Tech. And since then, that piece has inspired a number of um, other donations to the campus where we now have life-size figures of the first four African-Americans that attended Georgia Tech um, and there are some other things um, that's in the work. Now think about that. This is Georgia Tech Atlanta, center of the campus. Um, and, you know, so we're, we're doing things like that uh, to make hopefully an impact um, on, um, on society. Um, and then I would say the last thing uh, we're focused on, we're doing some things locally because we're from Miami uh, and we sponsor a series called Free Gospel Sunday. Uh, which brings in some of the top gospel artists uh, three times a year. Uh, and it is free to the public. Uh, and what that has done, it has allowed people from the inner city, from the, the, um, uh, the communities uh, that look like us, to have an opportunity to see a high-quality event at the Performing Arts, Arts Center um, here in Miami. And this, uh, these events attract a large number of people. Uh, and it is, the key word is free. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, Michelle and I, with, with others, we underwrite um, the event and we get, we get artists like Ty Trivet and Yolanda Adams and et cetera. So, I mean, these are the big names um, in, in, in gospel music. And so those are just some ex, uh, examples of some of the things that we are uh, doing and will continue to do 
to have an impact uh, and share our share our blessings. Certainly. Uh, you received a number of awards over your career, and I'm sure it continues. Uh, which ones stand out most? That's a tough one, but you know, because you know, I'm a proud engineer. Um, there's a uh, an appointment to what is called the National Academy of Engineering, which is one of the highest honors that you can receive uh, in the engineering profession, and and. By the way, the way it works, the only way you become appointed academy is the membership appoints you. So it's a self sort of um, governed um, organization. It was put in place by um, President Roosevelt. Um, and this organization, we do special studies and assignments for the, uh, for, for the government and other agencies. Uh, so the National Academy of Engineering, I would say, is my most pride possession because it's just really a statement of the impact and the contributions that I've had that I have had on the field of engineering. And when you look at my citation, it talks about uh, the impact that I've had on products ranging from mobile devices to the world's largest uh, supercomputers uh, that enable uh, you know, uh, our government, you know, uh, in terms of protecting um, our nation and helping uh, businesses um, run, run their, uh, run their enterprise. Uh, so that's sort of how my uh, citation reads in terms of my contribution across a, a broad range of um, computing solutions that, that has had a positive impact um, on, uh, you know, on the, uh, on businesses in the, um, in the United States. So that's my most pride possession. I uh, I would say probably after that uh, my two honorary doctorate degrees. Um, the one Georgia Tech is an interesting one. Uh, Georgia Tech is one of the oldest institutions around, and I was actually the first one, to, first African American to receive a uh, honorary doctorate degree. And it was uh, it was perfect because uh, it was when my youngest son graduated. Uh, so he and I graduated together. You know, I received my <laughs> honorary doctorate, and he received his um, his under, uh, undergraduate degree. And then my second doctorate from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And I got I got to admit, I must be the luckiest father in the world. But I received that doctorate when my oldest son graduated. And I don't know how many people can tell that story. Uh, but he graduated from UMBC. Uh, I was recognized with an honorary uh, doctorate. And, and I would say the reason why I, I put those high on the list is because of sort of the impact it has had as part of the family. And, you know, my two young men, I, I, I still think of them as my boys, but they're my two young men. Yeah. One is a, uh, a an accomplished artist and uh, author. That's my youngest one. He has now published his third book, first book when he was nineteen, and now he's twenty nine, and he he's published his um, third book, and he has a number of um, short films and movies that he's produced. Uh, and then my other son, who's a, an accomplished sales executive uh, in the healthcare um, arena. So those, I would say, those are my high on the list. And then the third one, which I think you and I share, 
uh, one of the most uh, distinguished uh, recognitions you can get from my fraternity, Kappa Alpha Psi, uh, is the Distinguished uh, Laurel Reef um, Award. And um, I became a uh, recipient of that recognition um, in um, 2017. Uh, I was in the history of the fraternity when it was uh, founded in 1911 um, on the campus of Indiana University. I became the 73rd uh, recipient um, of that of that award. So, and since when you're in fraternity and sorority life, you know, my designation was number three. So those were my top three, my top three awards. Excellent, excellent. So what's on the horizon uh, for Rod Atkins at this point? You know, there was a, this guy, I think he was, he was a short-term chairman for, um, I think it was, uh, the Coca-Cola company, and he made he he had a famous quote that I like. Uh, he said, "Never let your memories uh, be greater than your dreams." And I, and I thought that was again sort of consistent with uh, who I am. And although we talked a lot about my my past, uh, I am still very very ambitious and engaged in terms of what more I can do um, going forward. And that's one of the reasons why we have decided to leverage some of our resources uh, to hope uh, make a difference. So I am actively spending a lot of my time trying to get more uh, African-Americans on boards. Um, so I am dedicated uh, in doing that. I am also dedicated in terms of how we can get more African-Americans uh, in the STEM disciplines. Um, so I'm, I am very, very focused uh, and dedicated um, in, in doing that. And then I would say the third thing uh, would be, uh, you, know, you know, being a voice and doing as much as I can to deal with a, a lot of the uh, systemic racism and social uh, unrest that we are dealing with uh, today uh, in the hopes that whatever we do and continue to do, uh, we get to a point uh, where we will eliminate uh, that cancer from our, our, our society. Uh, so if I had to sort of pick the three things, that's, that's where I will be investing uh, most of my time most of my time uh, going going forward, uh, and it's a lot to do there. You know, uh, you know, we're making progress in terms of getting African Americans on boards, but it's still a lot to do there. Um, yeah. if you look at the number of scientists that we, uh, engineers, mathematicians, um, technologists that we're pr producing, there's still a lot uh, to do there, and of course, we're still dealing with. Um, some of the um, imbalance uh, uh, that was uh, created. And this, this sort of next chapter is, is really about you know, the, the focus on boards, STEM, and then doing all I can to, uh, in my role uh, to help, you know, make sure that we have a much more balanced um, 
uh, opportunity playing field uh, moving, yeah. moving forward. Well, I'll uh, I get you with the final question. It's a two part. Uh, what do you see next for technology? And then any closing remarks you might want to share. So, you know, we're again, we're in probably one of the most uh, interesting uh, periods of time uh, when you think about innovation. Um, and I I uh, referred to back in the early 80s, you know, when we sort of changed the world of computing with client server. Uh, that was a very interesting um, time uh, when computing moved from this sort of large uh, centralized structure to a system that could be in your home or in your hand. Uh, and now we're moving into an era where because we embedded intelligence in so many things, these, these things are now connected and they're generating all types of new information and data. Uh, so this is now what I would describe as the era of cognitive opportunities or cognitive systems. You'll hear us talk more about uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning. Uh, I did have the benefit to in my career on the early stages of what I would call the cognitive era uh, with the introduction of uh, a system we call Watson, uh, which played on Jeopardy in 2011. And now we have uh, IBM has commercialized system uh, to do other important work. And the world is moving more towards how do you ingest a lot of data, good data, bad data, and extract the insights from that information. And that is sort of the age uh, that we are moving into. So you're gonna see more technologies playing a central role going forward. Cloud computing will continue to play more of a major role. Um, analytics will become, uh, play uh, more of a major role. Artificial intelligence will uh, continue to play a major role. Um, the social, uh, uh, applications and solutions will be will play a major role. Security uh, will play a major role. So all these things will be sort of wrapped into how we deal with um, the opportunities um, moving moving forward. So I I I just think this is just an incredible opportunity for this generation. You know, my generation uh, innovation was sort of defined as technology advancing. This new generation actually have, they, they don't have that in terms of technology advancing, but they also have some interesting things happening in terms of changing business models. You know, so how businesses will conduct with, you know, connect with their uh, markets and, and conduct business on a global basis. And we, we're seeing a lot of different ways in which uh, how we work and how we live is changing because of advances in technologies, but also how the business model around those technologies are changing. Uh, and, you know, so looking forward, the, the, you know, the future is really, really bright. You know, when I think about things like how augmented reality, mm. uh, virtual reality will play a role in uh, transforming things, healthcare. You know, mm. so you could have a physician in some other part of the world who is the best expert performing a critical surgery uh, on a patient 
in some other part of the world by just using the the uh, virtual uh, technologies uh, and visualization technologies, um, uh, you know, connected with robotics and, and automate and, uh, and autonomous solutions. So when you start to think about the possibilities, uh, there there will you know it, it is it is really sort of uh, no limit in terms of where things are uh, where things are going. In fact, we embedded intelligence and we are connecting the world. Now, all of that sounds great because when you do that, you also have bad actors. And there are bad people out there that will also attempt to take advantage of the advancements in technology. As a matter of fact, I remind people that the cyber crime industry is a trillion dollar industry. Look at uh, all of the fraud and uh, breaches and ransomware and all that. You add all that stuff up, this, that is a huge industry uh, that's attracting bad actors. So like any advancement, you're going you're gonna to the good and some of the ugly and the bad. And hopefully as a, as a society, we will figure out how to leverage more good and eliminate some of the bad and the ugly. So uh, it's fascinating opportunities um, in front of us. Incredible, a trillion dollar industry yeah. uh, just engaging in technological malfeasance. So, that's right. That's right. Uh, uh, any closing comments you might want to share? No, I um, just to sort of wrap back. You know, you know, one of my uh, one of my favorite quotes was by uh, Jimi Hendrix. You know, he uh, in one of his songs he said, uh, "Knowledge speaks." but wisdom listens. And I always thought that was a very powerful uh, statement because one of the things I always prided myself with is I listen well, uh, and, I, and I always seek the knowledge. And then I translate that into action, which you can say uh, that's where the wisdom um, plays out. And, and Jimi Hendrix actually was an interesting guy. You know, he was a prop of the 60s. Uh, most people don't know this, but his main stage acting career only lasted four years. Incredible. But when we talk about him today, he is among the discussion in terms of one of the greatest guitar players to have ever raced us with um, his talent. And he did all of that in, in four uh, four short years. So he's he's an interesting human being from that perspective. But I think... His statement is a very, very powerful statement. The last thing I'll uh, leave you with is uh, Nelson Mandela, one of my uh, favorite uh, quotes. He basically said, "It is always, you know, it always seems impossible until it is is done. It is done. It always seems impossible until it is done." And again, you know, think about the journey that I've been on, you know, there, there have been times it, it felt impossible. But now looking back, um, it was sort of a calculated approach um, because it had good foundation and it also had um, good discipline. Um, and I think when you sort of combine those two things, uh, you, can, you can make things that may seem to be 
and possible, and you can convert them into a reality. Uh, so uh, I, I trust that, you know, some of the things I had to say here uh, will have some meaning, will have some impact. Um, but again, at the end of the day, uh, my journey, uh, I am very pleased and proud with, but it's not my journey. It was our journey uh, because I, I did have a number of um, people uh, that, that share in this uh, sharing this success. And as we discuss, um, I am not even close to in the job. I still have a few more things I need to get done. So, so thank you. Here, here, and I, I, I'm so delighted to uh, you know have a front row seat to watch you work uh, with so much more uh, yet to be done. Uh, you know, just to recap, you've talked to us about you know the early lessons you learned about uh, time in focus and balance. You talked about the importance of creativity, curiosity, and daydreaming. You've talked about understanding the need to always operate at the top of your game. Uh, you further talked about knowing when to listen, when to leverage, and when to learn. My guest today has been Rod Atkins. My name is Lalu Davis Yamaton, and you've been listening to my brother podcast. Oh,